11, we concluded our time last week in uh, Mark chapter 10. It was a marathon through Mark 10. We spent six weeks um, going through uh, going through the 10th chapter of Mark uh, as we continue each week to um, see this good news of a better kingdom, the kingdom of God that Jesus comes proclaiming um, right there in the very beginning of Mark's gospel. We continue to see it uh, unfolding each and every week. And this morning, we will see uh, the arrival of our king into Jerusalem. And so um, let me go back and let me set a little bit of context for us, having come out now of Mark 10 and going into uh, what is uh, often referred to as the Passion Week of Jesus. You might think, oh, wow, Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. We must be close to the end. Um, But Mark dedicates roughly a third of his gospel to the last week of the life of Jesus. And so um, we still have a ways uh, to go. But as we look back, we just passed two weeks ago, really the hinge point of Mark. Uh, if we go back to Mark chapter 10, verse 35, we see Jesus um, Jesus say that, that the Son of Man um, has come not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for, uh, for many. Last week, uh, we saw uh, Jesus restoring sight to the blind. Um, We see Jesus extending grace um, and mercy, and we see the persistence of blind Bartimaeus crying out to Christ, um, petitioning him, asking him, requesting of him that he might might see. Um, And and we talked about this last week, but uh, it is helpful to revisit this each and every uh, week um, pre uh, Mark ten fifty two prior to the um, restoration of sight for blind Bartimaeus um, we see ourselves right we see ourselves we see our blindness we see our inability to see um, in in blind Bartimaeus right we're talking on a, a on a physical and a and not no, so much a physical sense although that is a reality of the broken world that we live in but a uh, spiritual sense right that our our hearts are hard um, and sinful our eyes are closed and we are um, in complete darkness right we see ourselves we saw ourselves in blind Bartimaeus but then we said this that the, the tail end of our time we see Jesus restore sight and there is this grand realization that while we see ourselves and our blindness in Bartimaeus in Christ we see, right, that, that sight is restored, that he restores sight to um, the blind. He, he restores sight to, to blind Bartimaeus, and Bartimaeus responds by following after Jesus. Uh, he, he follows him to the cross. He celebrates um, the hope of the resurrection. Um, and, and we see there uh, not only the work and grace and mercy of Christ um, extended to blind Bartimaeus, but also that which is uh, that which is extended to sinners even even today. Um, and so that is where we were last week. Some contextual things as we prepare to see Jesus enter into Jerusalem this morning. Our aim is um, as such as we as we look to the arrival of our King, right into 
into the city of Jerusalem. Our aim is to, um, following our time together, having celebrated yet again um, the good news of Christ, um, to live in light of the sovereignty of Christ. And we're going to see this morning from this passage in Mark chapter 11 that Christ is sovereign, right? And so we are encouraged to live in light of the sovereignty of Christ, to live in a state of daily submission to the word of God and to celebrate the salvation that is made available through Jesus and his sacrificial death in our place upon the cross, right? To celebrate the resurrection of Christ and the forgiveness of sins, right? To, to celebrate the work of God, to redeem lost and, and broken and sinful people unto himself. And so um, that is where we're, we're going, Now, as we approach our passage um, this morning, we will see through the course of our time that there is a challenge to our understanding and perception of the Christian life through what is referred to as the triumphal entry. Perhaps you have a heading uh, in your Bible as you come into Mark chapter 11, and there it is, the triumphal entry, Jesus' entrance into, into Jerusalem. I think that our understanding and perception of the Christian life is, um, is challenged and informed through the triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem. I want to point out two realities that Christians can affirm, that we can affirm together this morning. In fact, I'll go as far as to say this, that if we don't affirm these things, we are either A, not a Christian, or B, tragically ill-informed. And so what are these two things? And all of this works in connection with what we're going to see from the first 11 verses Uh, of Mark chapter 11. First, Christ fulfills the law of God. Christ fulfills the law of God in all of the ways that you and I uh, fail, in all the ways that we we struggle, in all of our shortcomings. Christ does not come up short, and he does so in a way that glorifies God, and as a result, um, we can experience our ultimate good. Christ is perfectly holy. He is perfectly loving. He is perfectly humble in all of the ways that you and I often struggle. He is faithful for us. We affirm this as Christians, right? Our, our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness, right? This is what we sing. This is what we affirm as a body of believers. And then, having been called by God, To live a Jesus kind of life, having been redeemed by grace alone through faith alone with new and changed, transformed hearts, we are called to follow in the path of Jesus. We as Christians are, are called to live as he lived while all the while pointing towards Christ as our righteousness, and our atoning substitute. That is to say that Christ has taken our place. Right, that he has absorbed God's wrath. He has taken upon himself the punishment that you and I deserved at the cross. Through Jesus' entrance into the city, we are reminded that our king is different. We're reminded that our king, Jesus, is, is different and that he calls his people to live lives that are different. And so let me rattle off a series of points that we're going to work on understanding as we work through this passage. We are encouraged in this and towards this by Christ and his character. 
embracing this reality that our lives now look different in light of who Jesus is and in light of what he has, he has done. We are encouraged in this through the actions of Christ, his observations. We see an incredible observation by Jesus at the tail end of our passage today that leads us into next week. I told a few of you guys earlier this week, I mean, I would love to have just knocked out the whole uh, chapter here this morning, but that is just far too optimistic for me. So we are not even going to begin to try to touch that, but we will be there next week. There's a huge connection between what we see in the first half of this chapter and what we see next week. We see an observation from Jesus. We see a rejection from Jesus. We see the path that Jesus embraces and the sure hope of things promised by the same King who fulfills God's promises in earlier days okay and so this is where we are going this is what we're going to be looking at this morning and so go with me to mark chapter 11 you're probably already there uh, and we're going to look at the first 11 verses in our time together today so would you follow along uh, with me mark chapter 11 beginning in verse 1 the triumphal entry of jesus into jerusalem now when they drew near to jerusalem To Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And then they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. Verse 5, and some of those standing there said to them, what in the world are you doing with our colt? Right? No, that's the Kirk translation. What are you doing untying the colt? Verse 6, and they told them what Jesus had said, and they left, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. This is probably a familiar passage for many of us. It's not uh, Palm Sunday today, right? But here we are in Mark chapter 11, verse 9. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. And he, being Jesus, entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Hey, let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. And for your goodness, for your grace, um, we pray that you would, as only you can, open our eyes and our hearts to your truth uh, displayed and proclaimed through your word this morning uh, that we might stand in, in awe and be brought to a position of greater adoration before Jesus, that everything that we hear over the next few minutes together might inform the way that we approach the table together as a fellowship, enjoying the union that you have called us into and looking forward to your your return. We pray that what we read here this morning would inform the way that we approach you in, in worship and in song 
as we conclude our time together today. And that as we leave, that our hearts might indeed be encouraged to to, to live to the glory of your name. We are grateful for adoption through the blood of Jesus. And it's in his name, Father, that we pray. Amen. Amen. Hey, four observations. I'm going to give you guys these things out front. This is where we're going. And uh, we're going to be a little heavy on the front end. And so um, when you look down at your watch and you're like, oh, my gosh, wow, we're still going and we're only on point three. Rest assured that the last two are much shorter than the first two. So here we go. First the, uh, the sovereignty of Christ. We're going to see the sovereignty of Christ displayed in verses 1 through 3. Second, the submission of Christ. The sovereignty of Christ, the submission of Christ. Thirdly, the salvation of Christ. And finally, the justice of Christ. The sovereignty of Christ, the submission of Christ, the salvation of Christ, and the justice of of Christ. The fourth one really sets us on a trajectory towards next week. And so let's look at verses one through three and begin unpacking from what we see here in Mark chapter 11, the sovereignty of of Christ on display through these first three verses. Look with me uh, beginning in verse one. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and he said to them, go into the village in front of you, And immediately, as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. The sovereignty of Christ. What do we mean? What does it mean when we discuss God's sovereignty? When we say that God is sovereign, what are we saying? What are we affirming? When we affirm the sovereignty of God, observable in Scripture, what does does that mean? I love what A.W. Pink has to say concerning God's sovereignty. He says this. He says, God's sovereignty is the... uh, Uh, is the exercise of his supremacy. Okay, God's sovereignty is the exercise of his supremacy. And so his being sovereign, right, if we're confused on what this language means, hang around for just a little while and we're going to establish some things here. But we can say that the sovereignty of God uh, equates with an exercising of his supremacy. So what does that mean? Here's what Pink has to say. He says, being infinitely elevated above the highest creature. He is the most high, Lord of heaven and earth, subject to none, influenced by none, and absolutely independent. God does as he pleases. And so when we talk about the sovereignty of God, Right? When, we talk about, when we talk about the supremacy of God, what we are affirming about the character of God is that he does as he pleases. Right? That, he, that he moves and he works according to his plan and his purpose and his will. God is subject to no one and nothing. He does what he wants and if he pleases it, nothing and no one can oppose him. This is really good news for God's people. Right, that we worship a king who does 
as he pleases. This means, okay, let's unpack the different levels of this because they are various, right? This means that God exercises his supremacy, his power on a cosmic level, right? That being that the, that the, the planets remain in motion, that the sun continues to, to, to shine, right? The earth continues to spin and you and I are still placed here breathing air into our lungs and not flying off of this orb that is the earth, right? Because God keeps us in place. He exercises his sovereignty on a cosmic scale while at the same time displaying his influence over the details of life. We don't want to divorce these two ideas this morning, okay? God exercises his supremacy on a cosmic scale, right? He keeps the big things in motion, right? And the big things at bay, he does this while at the same time remaining absolutely sovereign and supreme over the details of life. In verses 1 through 3, we see the supreme knowledge of God in Christ Jesus. In verses 1 through 3, we see the supreme knowledge of God in Christ Jesus as it relates to the location of this cult that would serve as the carrier of the Christ into the city. Okay, Jesus moves and works and he brings about his will according to his plan in large moments as well as, as we see in the first three verses of Mark chapter 11, the small moments as well. So let's consider for just a moment where we're talking about the, 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 the supreme knowledge of Christ, that there is this cult that is tied up in this specific location that he is sending his disciples to go and to take hold of and to bring back for a, a really incredible purpose that we're going to talk about in just a few moments. But you understand we're talking about the supreme knowledge of Christ and the details God's sovereignty displayed through Christ in the details of everyday life. That's what we're talking about here. We, can, we don't oftentimes have a problem embracing that God wakes us up every morning. Right? That the sun continues to shine because he allows it. He keeps it. He holds it. We don't have a hard time embracing that. But it is more difficult for us at times to believe that God is sovereign over those, those small moments in life, right? The, the small moments that oftentimes we're able to reflect back on and say, oh yeah, that was actually a really pivotal point like, in my life, right? Or in this season or in the world or whatever that might be. Here, we're talking about the supreme knowledge of Christ of this cult. Why is that so important? Well, we're going to see in just a, a few minutes. It's going to be not so much a, a minute point, but it's actually a really, 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 really big one. But affirming these truths about Jesus, understanding the sovereignty of God, affects the way that we think and the way that we live. The truths that we're discussing, that we see displayed in these first three verses, challenges the way that we live our lives. It informs the way that we live our lives. Can I give you a few examples of how this is true? What understanding and embracing God's sovereignty in the world and in our lives does as we seek to live in light of the good news of the gospel? Can I give you guys a few of these? Feel free to make notes of your, of your own as we go. Again, these are, this is not an exhaustive list, but these are a few that came to mind. What does God's sovereignty 
do as we understand it, as we embrace it. Number one, God's sovereignty dispels worry. God's sovereignty dispels worry. All over the Old and New Testament, we see commands from God to his people to not be anxious, to not worry. Here are a few examples of those. Isaiah 41, 10. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Matthew 6, verse 25, Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. Paul writes in his letter to the Philippians, Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 through 7, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, Paul writes, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And listen what he says here, and we see this displayed beautifully through this passage. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will what? This is what Paul says in Philippians chapter 4. That it will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. God's sovereignty, understanding and embracing this characteristic of God makes possible a dispulsion of Worry, grasping the supremacy of Christ over circumstance, which is, by the way, okay, let's just touch base, right, is a supernatural act of grace that we are able to grasp this reality, produces a certain capacity for obedience to the call of God for his people to not worry that we see displayed in Isaiah 41, Matthew 6, and Philippians chapter Four, let me say that another way. Embracing this idea that, is, that God is in absolute control and that he does what he wants and he works his plan according to his will and his purpose makes it possible for you and I to step back and to say, he's got this, right? In seasons of difficulty, Right in seasons of, of 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 trial, right seasons that give way to anxiousness and concern, to step back and to understand and to embrace this reality concerning the character of God sets a people at ease. Right? We, we do we get this? Do we understand this? That we step back and we go like a like a child, right? Uh, every uh, every night, every night. Uh, I, especially over the past couple of weeks, because Courtney hasn't been able to lift Judah very much, like because of a s- procedure she had. So, which most of you guys know about, but we won't get into all of that, right? Uh, every night, um, I bathe Judah and then I get him out. Judah is our 19 month old, right? Um, I get him out of the bath and I take him in. I put him on his changing table and I change him and I lotion him up, right? Lotion and babies, important things. I'm getting it, right? Um, we put the, the jammies on, right? Comb his hair, do all that stuff. And then I stand him up on his changing table and this is just for me this is fun and he likes it too but I stand him up and then I back away and I go one two and like when I get to three like he just like falls forward like he just like kind of jumps off right um and and he's confident right he's he's confident that he can do so because 
I haven't let him hit the ground yet, right? Now, if I miss, this is this whole thing's going to change, right? Like the whole dynamic of the one, two, three relationship and the falling off jumping is going to change a little bit. But, but up until this point, right, he trusts me. He is confident in my ability to, to catch him and to care for him, that I have what is, what is ultimately good for him in mind. Why do I connect it this way? Well, because you and I can say the same thing about our father who, as we sang earlier, has adopted us through the blood of the son into the family. That, that he exercises his supremacy. Right? That he, he does not lose sight of all the balls in the air, but he keeps them all in motion. That we can be confident. We can be confident that because God is sovereign, that he exercises supreme knowledge and power, that in the midst of difficult seasons that oftentimes produce anxiety and worry, which are sinful, right? In light of the commands that we see from God for his people not to worry or be anxious, that we might run back to the character of God and be encouraged through those seasons. Does that make sense? Are we following along here, right? We rest in the person, the work, the character of God. We rest there and it produces within God's people this supernatural ability to go through difficult seasons of life and to not worry. Is it a struggle? Absolutely. Like, do we fall back into it? Absolutely. I've worried about numerous things over the course of this past week, as you have as well, I'm sure. But we can go back and we can say, if these things are true about who God is, is, then that ought to dispel the worry and the anxiousness that I often battle with and struggle with in this life. And it ought to bring me to a point of confidence about who Christ is. I mean, the disciples get this to a degree, right? Because they, they listen to Jesus say, go into the city and find a colt. And they do, right? Now, we don't know. I'm sure in their minds, they're like, man, really? Like, is this colt going to be here? Like, what's kind of going on here? But when they get there, they see absolutely, absolutely it is. Grasping the supremacy of Christ over circumstance produces a certain capacity for obedience to the call of God for his people to not worry. God's sovereignty is heavier than the worries of this world. God's sovereignty is heavier than the worries of this world. We as a people are in need of feeling the weight of the supremacy of Jesus. Do we get this? That's number one, okay? Number two, God's sovereignty encourages mission. God's sovereignty encourages mission. God does his work, and he does his work through his word. And we, as his people, seeking to live on mission where he has placed us and to the ends of the earth, place our complete confidence in his faithfulness to advance his church. God's sovereignty inspires and enables and encourages a living out of mission. And we we believe with all that we are that the salvation of sinners and the sanctification of the saints is a work of the Lord. And believing this reality, believing this reality, it sets us free, right? It sets us free. 
free to faithfully share the news of forgiveness found in Christ without pressure. What do we do if we rest on and in the sovereignty of God? Right? We, we share and we engage. We love and we forgive. We point others to the cross of Christ in the hope of the resurrection. We call people to respond and we trust we trust that God will open eyes. And so God's sovereignty dispels worry. God's sovereignty encourages mission number three. God's sovereignty, God, God's sovereignty comforts. God's sovereignty comforts. It is a, it is a comforting thought. It is, it is a comforting reality that our God, Psalm 115.3, is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. Man, <laughs> right? That's, man, that's, that's like easy, isn't it? Like that's easy. It is, it is an easy uh, yoke uh, around our, our necks. God's sovereignty comforts. Number four, God's sovereignty gives us hope and certainty for the future. God is never helpless. He is never frustrated. He is never at a loss. Charles Spurgeon said it like this. The sovereignty of God is a sweet pillow that you can lay your head on at night. Right? That that we can sleep and we can rest. Right? That we don't have to, to stay awake and make sure everything continues to happen because we worship a king. Right? Who... Who, who exercises perfect power and perfect dominion over all things, that nothing escapes his eye, right? And that he remains, he remains steadfast and faithful. The sovereignty of Christ in this, this seemingly insignificant point, Right, that there's a donkey, there's a colt that's tied up to a post, and if you go there, you can get it and you can bring it back. Man, we're encouraged to to, to see and to observe the sovereignty of Christ in verses one through three. Number two, the submission of Christ in verses four through eight. Look with me at verse four. The submission of Christ says this, and they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. Some of those standing there said to them, Why, uh, what are you, are you doing untying the colt? And they told him what Jesus had said, and they, they let him go. And they brought the colt to Jesus, and they threw their cloaks on it. And Jesus sat on it, verse 8. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. In verses 4 through 8, we see the humble submission of the creator and the sustainer of all things who up until this point has, let's review what we've seen in Mark so far, healed the lame, the blind, the sick, the deaf, and the mute. Okay, he has walked on water, he has fed the hungry, he has comforted the hurting, he has has confronted the affluent, and he has pursued the marginalized. He is amazed the people, he's amazed the people with his authentic and authoritative teaching. And now, having displayed his capacity to walk throughout his earthly ministry, both on water and land, we see this unique scene in which Jesus climbs on the back of a young colt and he rides it into Jerusalem as a king prepared to take his place upon the throne. 
right? Jesus enters the holy city and he enters the city like no king before or since. And in doing so, Christ displays both his humility and his submission to the word of God and his fulfillment of the prophets. In verses 4 through 8, as we see the donkey brought, the colt brought, and Jesus taking his place upon being led into the city to the cries of the people, we see the fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 through 12 and 16. Okay, so that which Christ has displayed his sovereignty over up until this point is not an insignificant point. But it's in fact a monumental point. It speaks towards the reality of his being the Christ, the Messiah who had come to rescue his people from their sins. We see that in Zechariah chapter 9. Zechariah writes this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Listen to this. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Okay, and so what are we seeing just there in the first few verses, verse 9 of Zechariah chapter 9? Christ is fulfilling the prophecy, right, of how the king, the Christ, the Messiah would enter into the holy city. Verse 10, I will cut off the chariot of Ephraim. And the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from river and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free. From the waterless pit, return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today, today I declare that I will restore to you double. Verse 16, on that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people. For like the jewel of a crown, they shall shine on his land. Jesus Jesus comes into Jerusalem in a way that displays very very clearly, given what we see from the prophet Zechariah, that he is taking his rightful position as king. Only, as king, he doesn't enter with flash, right? But he, he enters with grace. He doesn't enter with flair, but he does so with meekness. I want to compare for just a moment the entrance of Christ with other religious and political leaders observable in history. Listen to what Steve Lambert of Capitol Hill Baptist Church had to say as he looked at the way that Christ enters into Jerusalem preparing for this this final week of his, of his earthly ministry and life, and the way that Muhammad entered into uh, Mecca. Listen to what he has to say here. In no other manner are the differences between Muslims and Christians more sharply contrasted than, the, than in the differences between the characters and legacies of their prophets. He says this, perhaps the contrast is best symbolized by the way Muhammad entered Mecca and Jesus entered Jerusalem. Muhammad rode into Mecca on a war horse. 
surrounded by 400 mounted men and 10,000 foot soldiers. Those who greeted him were absorbed into his movement. Those who resisted him were vanquished, killed, or enslaved. Muhammad, Muhammad conquered Mecca and took control as its new religious, political, and military leader. Today, in the uh, in the uh, in the place of, of Istanbul, Turkey, of where Muhammad entered in, right? Uh, Muhammad's uh, sword is proudly on display. Jesus, on the other hand, entered Jerusalem on a donkey. He was accompanied by twelve of his disciples and was welcomed and greeted by people waving palm fronds, a traditional sign of. Of peace, Jesus wept over Jerusalem because the Jews mistook him for an earthly, secular king who was to free them from the yoke of Rome. Whereas Jesus came to establish a much different heavenly kingdom, Jesus came by invitation and not by force. You see, if we survey the landscape of history. We, we can say confidently that Napoleon was not Jesus, that Muhammad was not Jesus, returning from war, sword held high with captive kings and citizens following behind in chains. This isn't how Jesus enters into Jerusalem. Jesus enters in as the lowly prince of peace. Right, descending on a city full of people captive to sin in order to set them free by way of the cross and his substitution for their rebellion. You see, he, Jesus, comes to rescue his foes. Right? He, Jesus, comes taking the hardship of sin upon himself, embracing physical death and God's wrath so that slaves to sin might be made alive in him. This is not how rulers enter into cities as they prepare to take their place upon the throne. But we know that Christ is no ordinary king, right? That he is no ordinary ruler. That while he exercises total supremacy and total sovereignty over every inch of creation, right, that he would embrace the cross before the crown, that Jesus would indeed take his rightful place as king, but he would do so by way of the cross. And so how do we begin to apply some of the things that we've heard already this morning? Let us see the uniqueness of Christ. Let us see the uniqueness of Christ. Let us see his submission to the word of God and the will of the Father. And let's follow after him. Let us follow after him. We see in Mark chapter 11, the sovereignty of Christ. We see the submission of Christ. And then we see the salvation of Christ in verses 9 and 10. Look with me at verse 9. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. The people cry out for Jesus to save them. This is reflected in the language that they use. Hosanna! Hosanna! Save us! Us Only the people have no idea what they're actually saying, right? Because, because their idea of salvation 
is, is, is oftentimes most reflected in the way we see Muhammad ride in. Right? That, that, that his enemies would be taken captive. And that he would take his place upon the throne as the political and social, the economic ruler of the land. Jesus, on the other hand, he, he, he gets it, right? Massive, a massive understatement there. Right? The, the irony of their request, given what Jesus is there to accomplish, is certainly not lost on Jesus He's not there necessarily to to liberate them from the external oppressors. But instead, he's there to to rescue them, to liberate them from the bondage and the power of sin. They're in so deep that they can't even begin to comprehend. We, we, We are in so deep that we oftentimes have a really, really challenging time comprehending. The people are expecting the redemption of Israel while Jesus is on, he's on mission. Jesus is on mission to, to rescue sinners from every tribe and every tongue and every nation in the world. We see here, right, the beginnings of the fulfillment of 2 Samuel chapter 7 verses 12 through 16, which I think we addressed last week, but we're going to go there Again, I want us to consider, as I read here, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 16, I want us to consider what we have observed from the first uh, 10 verses of Mark chapter 11 up until this point. Here's what Samuel has to say. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. Again, this is is Samuel um, speaking to David. He said, who shall come from your body? And I will establish his kingdom. And so God is speaking of this, this kingdom that is to be established, that is, that is already and not yet, right, in, in essence. Verse 13, and he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom. For how long? For forever. And I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity... Right? And this is, again, this is going back and forth between what we see between, um, between David and Christ as the ultimate fulfillment and Samuel, or, or, or I'm sorry, Solomon. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. Christ fulfills this in a truer and better way as he takes our place upon the cross, right? Receiving in himself and on himself the rod that we are due, the stripes that we are due. Verse 15, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. Verse 16, and your house And your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. We are seeing as Christ rides into the city on the back of a colt, lowly and humble. We are seeing the fulfillment of 2 Samuel chapter 7 verses 12 through 16. And so how do we respond to this? We confess Christ. We confess Christ and we call out to him for forgiveness and redemption. We see not only the the sovereignty of Christ, the submission of Christ, and the salvation of Christ, but lastly we see the justice of Christ. 
verse 11. And again, there is, uh, I see a good thing. We didn't do the whole chapter. Like we would be here for a very long time. You see, you are all very, very welcome. This sets the stage for where we're going next week. It says in verse 11 that upon having entered into the city, Jesus, uh, he, he enters and he goes to the temple. And when he comes to the temple, it says he looked around at everything as it was already late and he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Now we're going to see next week Jesus' response to that which he observes as he enters the temple in preparation for the Passover. Needless to say, Jesus is extremely displeased with what he observes in the temple. And we see a response as we go into next week's passage. But we are introduced here to the king's justice. We'll see it much more explicitly next week and his actions that follow. But we can certainly say some things about this very just king who has just ridden into the city in light of what we know is to come in the future. I came across a, a really helpful um, chart this past week that really laid out explicitly what we see through the coming of Christ into Jerusalem and that which we have to look forward to as he returns again. Okay? Because this is the reality, right? Newsflash. Christ spends a week in Jerusalem. He gives his life as a ransom for sinners. He's buried in the ground and then he conquers death, hell, and the grave. Right? He comes back to life. And he spends some days with his disciples displaying himself before them as evidence that he has indeed resurrected back to life. And then he ascends to the right hand of the Father. And we as Christians believe that Christ is returning, that he's returning one day, right? And he's going to judge and he's going to, he's going to redeem and remake everything that we observe, observe around us that has been so tainted by sin, Right, that we will exist in a, as God's people, glorified state, bodies absent of sin and brokenness, right, as He intended us to do so. And so, this is the reality Christ is returning. And so, how can we compare and contrast the coming of Jesus into Jerusalem here and that which we have to look forward to? As He rides into Jerusalem in Mark chapter 11, He has come to die. Now, when He comes back, Scripture makes it abundantly clear that he is coming to, to reign forever. Here he comes on a donkey. He will come in the future on a, a horse. He has come as a humble servant in Mark chapter 11. But he will come as an exalted king. He comes here in Mark chapter 11 in, in weakness. But he will come in Power. He came here to save, but he is coming to judge. He came in love, but he will come back in wrath. He came as deity veiled, but he will return as deity revealed. Right? His person, who Christ is, will be undeniable. Right? Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. There will be no capacity. There will be no ability to deny who he is as he returns. He came with 12 disciples, but man, he will return with an army of angels. He came to bring peace, but he will come to make war. He is given a crown of thorns as he approaches the cross, but he will receive a crown of royalty. He embraces his role as the suffering servant as he comes into Jerusalem in Mark chapter 11, but he will come as the king of kings 
and the Lord of Lords. The justice of Christ, and we will observe that as we look next week to the response of Jesus to what he observes in the temple. And so what do we know and what do we do in light of our time in these first 11 verses today? We can know and we can do some things. We can know and see the supremacy of Christ. We can know, we can see the supremacy of Christ on display. And so how do we respond? We look to these truths of Christ to provide hope and salvation, rescue Christ has come to to rescue a people who are incapable of rescuing themselves. He does so in grace and mercy. He gives himself so that we might be made alive by grace through faith. And so we rest in him. We rest in Christ. We embrace mission and we adopt as God's people an eternal perspective. Everything that we see through the first 11 verses encourages this response in God's people. Rest in him, embrace mission, and adopt an eternal perspective for our lives. An adoption of eternal perspective in light of this realization of God's sovereignty that changes the way that we live, man, it makes it makes Sunday afternoon and Monday look very, very, very different. It makes it look very different. And so let's respond in these ways today as we approach the table. We're going to take the Lord's Supper in just a moment. Um, I'm going to pray for us. And then if you're a Christian, you know, we would invite you to approach the table this morning and to, and to take Right of, of the bread and the cup as we remember um, the, the broken body of Christ and his blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. We, we enjoy this divine fellowship with God's people and, and as we are indwelt with the spirit of God, uh, with him as we look forward to enjoying it in a newer and fuller way one, uh, one day. And so let us come with repentant and joyful hearts to the table. These guys are going to come and they're going to um, they're going to they're going to lead us in a song as we conclude our time. But but go prayerfully. Let us approach the table prayerfully and repentantly today, joyfully, in light of what Christ has done for us.